Well, if you have your Bibles with you, and I hope you do, turn with me to Hebrews chapter 9. We are continuing our study of the book of Hebrews today, and we are going to be concluding um, our study of Hebrews chapter 9. We've gone slowly through the book of Hebrews, and we take some... uh, we stop at certain points and including next week uh, we're going to start into a kind of a series of advent messages through John chapter 1 but today we're going to be finishing up Hebrews chapter 9. Let me pray and then we're going to look at verses 23 to 28. Father God we thank you for this moment to gather together as your people to circle around your word to hear from you again. Lord as The older some of us get, we realize that so much of our spirituality is not necessarily learning something new, but being reminded of the good news of the gospel. Lord, I pray that we would be reminded today of how good your grace is. Lord, as we delve into a passage that in many ways is complex, and even for some people it's controversial, I pray, Father, that we wouldn't get lost in the theoretical arguments of this passage, but that we would see how it genuinely impacts our daily spiritual lives, how we relate to you, how we even view ourselves, and how uh, we uh, can battle against sin, and just the hope that we have in the gospel. Lord, I pray that this passage would just be sweet to our souls. Father, I also ask uh, to that end that your spirit would come, and that he would do the work that only he can do, that he would open our eyes to the truth, that he would convict us where we need conviction, that he would encourage us where we need encouragement. Help, help us to see blind spots where we can't see them. So Lord, we, we have work to do today, and, and we ask you to come and to help us. Finally, Lord, I pray that I would not say anything out of step with your will or your word, but I would simply hide behind the cross. It's in Jesus' name we'll pray. Amen. Well, this week I heard a strange story about uh, this group of impoverished families who were panicking over uh, these large unforeseen bills that started hitting their mailboxes. Now, it's easy to allow the hard circumstances of this life to really rob our joy and rob our hope in heaven, right? That's a, maybe a spiritual way of saying that uh, this sermon is for me because I'm kind of a worry wart. <laughs> I, I'm, a, I'm a complainer. I'm one of those people that the glass is always half empty. And so I can easily kind of just be overcome by the, by the struggles and the trials of this world. And it can just rob my joy. I can get an unforeseen expensive bill and panic like these people did. The story was, was kind of strange because these bills were from their, their local doctor. But the strange thing was is he had just passed away. The, the man had, had already passed away. But let me tell you the story of this doctor. This, again, in this area, this was kind of an impoverished rural community. And their longtime doctor had grown up in that community. And, of course, early on they had just seen some, you know, intellectual things about him. That he's a pretty smart kid. And then he went off to college. And then he went off to med school. And while he was at med school, he felt a real conviction and a desire to go back home to his home community and serve there as the local doctor. Now, in that, of course, is, you know, he was going to give up thousands of dollars to work there instead of in other communities. And and probably over career, you know, he gave up millions of dollars working in that community. But that was just his conviction. He felt it was a calling. And as a result, he was just beloved in that community. That community loved him. However, some of those things, as years went by, they they really began to, to sting in his wife's heart. 
There were things about the way he worked and where they worked that it was just hard. She bore a lot of the brunt of that. And frankly, she battled bitterness as the years went on. Now, when the good doctor died, he set her up financially well. However, she set about closing his office, closing his estate. And she was stunned by a phrase that she kept seeing in his billing logs. You see, on numerous bills, the generous doctor had zeroed out the bill. And here's the phrase that he wrote in on these bills. He would write, quote, forgiven, too poor to pay. Now, she saw this over and over again in those bills, and her inner accountant sort of quickly calculating this thing up. And he had zeroed out thousands of dollars of billable work. And so, you know, maybe for some of us, our, that instinct would be, man, he was so generous. For her, it just incensed her. <laughs> so she printed off all those bills, and she mailed them out demanding payment. Our question today is, what are the effects or what are the implications of forgiveness? Romans 9, 23 to 28, it teaches us three different effects or implications of our forgiveness. Now, we're concluding our look at Hebrews chapter 9. And all of Hebrews chapter 9 has been about the fact that Jesus is a better mediator. He's a better go-between between us and God. He, 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 he is better than the Old Testament priest and, and their covenant arrangement with God, their old covenant. And he's brought about this new covenant, and it's all based upon the fact that he is a better mediator because he made a better sacrifice. If you have your Bibles open, look at Hebrews 9.12. I think this is the key to this passage. Hebrews 9.12 says, He entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. So unlike the Old Testament priest, Jesus didn't come into the Holy of Holies over and over and over again, making sacrifices over and over and over again. His sacrifice was once. And further, it talks about that his sacrifice was once for all. And, and I think the best way to interpret that is once for all of God's people, for all of God's people's sins. So his sacrifice... Uh, um, his sac sacrifice affected uh, not only um, our outer sins, but also our inner sins. It, it affected our sin nature. It, it affected the entirety of our sins. And as a result of that, this sacrifice secured, quote, an eternal redemption. So one of the effects of this sacrifice is this eternal salvation that we have. He says in verse 15 that we have a promised eternal inheritance. Now, if you were with us last week, we talked about that in eternal inheritance, and we talked about how that eternal inheritance is guaranteed. It's guaranteed because at his death, it triggers, if you will, a will. So when he dies, he made this will in a sense, and it triggers all of the benefits of that will. So if you ever doubt, well, maybe this is true, maybe it isn't, you just point to the fact, well, if Jesus died, all these things are true. And then he goes even further in our, our passage last week that he talked about his blood inaugurated this new or better covenant, this new way of relating to God. And so we landed last week in Hebrews 9, verse 22, where he says, without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. So Jesus's blood was shed and thus our sins have been forgiven. That's where we are in verse 23. So in 23, we ask the question, what are the effects or what are the implications of this forgiveness? If Jesus died, enabling us to be forgiven, what then are the implications of, those, uh, of that forgiveness? And we're going to see three implications. Now, before we dive into this, I want to remind us maybe some of the big pictures, some of the contextual realities, if you will, of Hebrews. Hebrews is not this 
this theoretical debating book, okay? Now, now we're going to delve into some complex and, and I think even some controversial points of theology here. But, but it's not really intended for some sort of theoretical debate. It's really intended to keep you from falling away. This passage is here and is intended to help you persevere in your faith. So it has real practical uh, implications for you. God's heart for this, the reason why he's given it to us, is to help us in very practical ways. And so what I want us to see in these verses is, is this is going to call us to trust, believe, and hope in the implications of the cross as we face present problems. Well, let's look at the first effect, that Jesus is presently ascended and ministering. Jesus is presently ascended and he's ministering. Let me read these two verses. Thus it was necessary for the copies of the heavenly things to be purified with these rites, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. For Christ has entered not into the holy place made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. So again, the first effect is that the implication of Jesus' sacrificial death is that he has presently ascended, and in that ascension, he has a present ministry while he's in the presence of God the Father. Verse 23, it begins to set up this, uh, this effect by, by, keeping, by comparing or speaking to the Old Testament, Old Covenant. Now, that Old Testament, Old Covenant, the, the priest had rights, not R-I-G-H-T-S, but R-I-T-E-S. They had these cultic or religious rites. They had certain things that they did. They were supposed to do them at a certain time with a particular tool and all these different things. And all of those things were not bad. They were good. However, Jesus was better. And so he looks at these Old Testament rites and he said they're actually copies or representations of something better. Jesus's sacrifice is what was better. He's the better mediator. He's the superior go-between. He's, he's better than goats. He's better than bulls. And those sacrifices, again, were not bad, but they point to something better. We have a better new covenant in Christ. He becomes this better sacrifice for us. But how is he better? That's the question for today. How is all of this better now? Well, to answer that question, we have to understand the ascension. What, what is the ascension? Where was Jesus ascended to? And when he's ascended there, what is he doing now? Now, if you've never heard of the ascension, it's a reference back to Acts chapter 1. Now, in Acts chapter 1, at the end of Jesus' time here on earth, he brings his disciples together. He calls the disciples uh, and gives them this command to be his witness all over the world. We think that command still applies to followers of Christ today. And then Jesus ascended up, and then an angel came down and said that he would return. That's Acts chapter 1. Now, in Hebrews 9, 24, it tells us where he ascended to and what he's doing there. Now, where he ascended to is heaven. That's one of the main points that he makes here. He doesn't go back into the presence of God, i.e. the temple, this temple made with human hands. He goes to this spiritual realm. He goes to heaven. And so there's this comparison here between heaven and the temple. But really, for our purposes today, I think the main thing we're supposed to walk away with and see, what is he doing up there? Okay, great. Jesus is in heaven. He's not here. It's sort of obvious. But what's he doing up there? Well, I think there's two key things that he's doing up there that we see here. Number one, while in heaven, he serves as your constant attorney. He's your advocate. He's the one who advocates for you. First John 2 1 says, My little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ 
the righteous. So when Satan comes like he did with Job and tries to sift you, do you know what Jesus does in heaven? Jesus points to the cross and then he says, mine. Jesus is your advocate. When Satan comes for you, uh, you have an advocate, you have an attorney, and he's the type that always wins. He points to the cross and says, no, 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 mine. Now, maybe that's less of a problem for you. Maybe more of a problem for you is your own thoughts. When you're whispering in your own mind, you're condemning yourself, you know, when you draw back all those ways that you have failed and you're not worthy of any of this, Jesus steps in even at that point and he points to the scars on his hands and he says, covered. He, he, he atones and he, he advocates for you once again. So it, it, no matter if it's Satan or your own mind, your own whispering thoughts, he's continuing to advocate for you. He says, mine, he says, covered, and he does that right now. Right now, presently in your life, whenever that happens, you have a Jesus that's advocating for you. But that's not the end of it. You also have up there, you have one who is faithful uh, to pray for you, and he's also a loving counselor. All that's another way of saying is you have an intercessor. You have one who is interceding for you. Romans 8.34 says, Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who has died. More than that, who was raised? Who is at the right hand of God? Who indeed is interceding for us? Advocacy is something that he does when it's needed. When Satan comes, those thoughts come. He, he advocates again. But, but intercession, that's constant. If you're anything like me, you need constant intercession. You need someone constantly praying for you, caring for you, counseling you, helping you, pleading for you, empowering you. John Bunyan said that sin is still, quote, with us. It mixes itself with whatever we do. And if that's true, we need someone constantly interceding for us. And that's what Jesus promises to do. That's what he's doing right now in heaven for you. Whatever you need intercession for, he's interceding for you. Maybe a way of thinking of it is this. When Jesus calls you to come to me, he actually then steps in and empowers and helps you to come to him. That's the way he intercedes for you. Now, before we move on, let me make one more point about this. His interceding ministry to you in the present right now, his advocacy for you in the present right now, that's not just business for him. That's personal for him. Like what I'm saying is, is that's his heart for you. That's his instinct for you. That's the hair trigger thing that just bubbles out, you know, when it's needed. That's Jesus's heart for you. Dane Ortland in his book, Gentle and Lowly, says, Jesus shares with us in our actual experience. He feels what we feel. He, uh, he draws near and he speaks up longingly on our behalf. You see, friends, this means that when you lose your temper again, he doesn't just throw up his arms in disgust like an irritated father. He, 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 that's not his heart. You see, rather, he jumps in and he jumps at the opportunity to forgive you again. You see, his, his hair trigger is to serve you again. Bubbling right at the surface of his heart's desire when you fail is to restore you again. Teenagers, your heavenly father is different than your earthly father. He doesn't just get irritated when you struggle over and over and over again on the same stuff. He, he is not that way with you. He's always patient. He's always loving. That's his heart for you. He's always gentle and lowly with you. He always has a heart for you. He is better even than our good earthly parents. 
Jesus ascended into the presence of God in heaven. Therefore, the first implication of his sacrificial death is that he presently, right now, advocates for you and he intercedes for you. For Jesus, this ministry is not business, it's personal. This is his heart to do this. This is his heart's desire is to minister to you in this way. So this present ministry is not a burden to him. Jesus died in order to minister right now, verse 24 says, on our behalf. Okay, the second effect. The second effect is that Jesus' sacrifice is enough. Amen? Let me read verses 25 and 26. Nor was it to offer himself repeatedly as the high priest enters the holy places every year with blood not his own. For then he would have had to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But as it is, he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. The second effect or implication of Jesus' sacrificial atonement is that it is enough. We we don't need anything else. You see, again, the Old Testament uh, atonement and the Old Testament sacrifice, it was continuous. They had to do it over and over and over again. You see, in that way, their atonement was never enough. It never accomplished ultimately what it needed to accomplish. The, the technical term here is that it is efficacious. The Old Testament atonement was not efficacious. It didn't accomplish its intended end. It wasn't effective in that way because they had to do it over and over and over again. But Jesus's, by comparison, was efficacious. It accomplished what he set out to accomplish. The thing that he intended for it to achieve, that desired end, it achieved that desired end. And and if you need evidence of that, the evidence is is that he doesn't have to do it anymore. The evidence is, is we don't sacrifice bulls and goats anymore. We don't have to do that on the day of the atonement. It's all been done already. It was enough at that point. It was efficacious. It accomplished its desired end. But of course, the question is, what was the desired end of the atonement? Look again at verse 26. Jesus appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifices of himself. So Jesus' atoning sacrifice put away sin. That's what it accomplished. And it did it once for all. That's how Jesus' sacrifice was enough. So another way of understanding this is that Jesus' atonement completely solves the problem of sin. Now, we, we understand the depths of sin, right? Like sin in, in this kind of basic level, and most people just understand sin, it's just these outer things that we do. Maybe that angry word or that rude word or that cuss word or something that we say. That, that's what sin is. But Christians understand, okay, where did that word come from? Well, it, it came from a heart that was angry. It came from angry thoughts, right? So sin's on the inside, and then it manifests itself on the outside. So from the fall, from Adam and Eve, we have this nature of sin that has been passed down, almost like a disease to every single person. It's on the inside and it's on the outside. So we have these sins on the inside uh, that, that then play themselves out on the outside. Now, we need to be clear here that by God's grace, none of us are as bad as we could possibly be, right? Should we say amen? Should we praise God for that, right? Like if you, know some of the, if you knew some of the thoughts that I had, you wouldn't come anymore. If I knew some of the thoughts you had, we wouldn't let you in here anymore, right? We're never as bad as what we could possibly be. So that's not what we're talking about. But the reality of it is that sin is on the inside and on the outside, isn't it? It's, it's it, on the inside. We don't want God to be glorified in everything in our life. We don't want him to, to, be, the, to be the chief driver of our life. We want Jesus to be the co-pilot, right? We want, we want help when we want it, but we really want to live our lives our own way. 
We, we, we have all these desires, these fleshly desires that we want to satisfy rather than living self-sacrificially. Parents, when your kids were toddlers, maybe this was your experience. When our kids were little, when we worked hard on yes, ma'am, yes, sir, yes, ma'am, yes, sir. But before I even knew they could talk, you know what word came out? No. We didn't have to teach no. They do no on their own, right? Like in that moment, that little girl rolled her eyes at me, and that little boy said no to me. Like I became a believer in all of the Bible. This is all true, okay? See, that sin nature is in us. It's in all of us. It's on the, it's on the inside, and it manifests itself on the outside. What he's saying here in Romans 9 is he solves all of that. He atones for all of that. Now, if you're like me, this raises some questions, doesn't it? Two questions here. If Jesus' atonement is efficacious, it accomplishes its intended end. If it's the solution to this problem of sin, then I think it raises some questions. Number one, how can that be true if we still have sinful hearts and hands? Like, how can, Roman, or how can Hebrews 9 be true if you and I still struggle with sin? And number two, how can that be true if the Bible teaches that some do not spend eternity in heaven? Like, if all sin is taken care of for all people, then, then why does the Bible even talk, about, even talk about hell? Doesn't that mean that everybody's on their way to heaven? Well, let's take these two questions in turn. 1 John 1, 8 says this, If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. This explains that Christians still sin. We still have these sins, and they need to be atoned for. It doesn't mean that we're never going to struggle. It it doesn't mean we're ever going to get to this point where we never struggle with sin. Now, for us, that's probably obvious, right? Yes, we still struggle with sin. Now, there are corners of Christianity that try to say that once all your sins are atoned for, then you never really struggle with sin. Now, they start making up words and recategorizing things as mistakes and all of this and that. But it's just sin, right? What he's trying to say here in 1 John 1.8 is that Christians still struggle with sins. Now, our sins have been forgiven. We gain a relationship with God. We have the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. Uh, and we still have this, this life where we possess this sin nature. And thus, we're still going to struggle with sin. But, but at the same time, where our sins are forgiven. They're atoned for. But really, the good news is, is that Jesus, John 14, promises a helper to us to help us with those sins. And I think even better, God promises to sanctify us and to conform us into his image, Romans 8. And so he promises to be with us. He, he promises to help us in those moments. And he promises it that the longer we walk with him, the more we start looking increasingly like him, which is that's a great hope for when, you, when you're in uh, your middle ages like me, that there's going to be a day where hopefully I'm going to look more and more like Jesus. That's the great hope that he promises but, but he, the Bible is very clear that we still struggle with sin. So, so it doesn't mean that. However, the, maybe that second question, if Jesus died once and for all, doesn't that then mean that every person will be saved, every person will then be indwelt by the Holy Spirit, and then every single person is on their way to heaven? I mean, wouldn't that be the case? If he's atoned for us in that way, once for all, it's taken care of all of it, doesn't it, doesn't it mean that? I think if you took this verse, if you were on a desert island, you never read the Bible, and it was just this verse that plopped down, then I think, you could, I think you could interpret it that way. I think you could interpret this meaning that, okay, all sins are forgiven for all people. All people are then indwelt by the Holy Spirit. All people are going into heaven. The, the theological position there is called universalism. 
meaning that everyone gets saved. Theologically, it's the position of universal atonement or general for all people atonement. The problem is, is there's a lot of other verses that say otherwise, right? Like we could maybe pluck this one verse out and make that interpretation, but the problem is it's when the entire, in, in the entirety of the Bible. For example, Paul says uh, that unbelievers who are all self-seeking and do not obey the truth but obey unrighteousness, they, they will be, there will be wrath and fury, Romans 2. Jesus goes on to say in Matthew 25 that the unfaithful will be cast into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Okay, we're still walking down into this. But again, Jesus' uh, atonement accomplished its intended end. The theological term here is that it was efficacious. However, no verse in the Bible explains that Jesus' atonement was so that people could have the opportunity to choose faith in Christ. That's not what it's saying here. It's saying that he actually atoned for the sins. He actually accomplished uh, for it. It says that, in other words, his efficacious, it was efficacious for his elect. It actually accomplished our atonement. It doesn't say, okay, it just accomplished the opportunity to be saved, the opportunity then to choose salvation. I recognize we're in territory that is both complex and controversial, okay? We're going to talk about this practically in a second. But, but I, I just want to pause here and say that maybe some of these questions, maybe you, you never even thought of these questions, Maybe some of this line of reasoning, you, you've just never kind of gone down that track. Maybe some of you just wholeheartedly disagree with this. That's okay. okay? <laughs> you can be in this church if you don't check all these boxes or, or seen it, you know, maybe the way I see it. I'm just trying to be faithful to interpret this in the most faithful way that I see it, okay? But, but you don't have to have all this worked out. If some of this is new to you and you're still trying to, you know, put some of these dots together, that's okay. But, but if you're there, I want you to ponder some things for a second with me. See, if, if you reject the view that Jesus' intended end for his atonement was only for his people, then you need to ponder what you've lost. If you reject that, I think you've lost some things. But on the flip side, if you accept this view that his atonement is limited to those who are converted, then, then you need to ponder what you've gained, okay? What I think he's saying here is he's actually accomplished his atonement. Now, we know the Bible's clear, not everyone's atoned for so who's he talking about? Who's the all? Well, I think the all is his people. He's, ato- he's accomplished atonement for all the sins of all his people. So if you accept that view, I think there's some things you need to ponder. But if you reject that view, I think there's some things you need to ponder. You see, if you reject it, then you need to come up with a reason for why not all are saved. So if you think, okay, no, he died for all the sins of all people, then you have to explain, okay, well, then why are not all people saved if, if their sins are atoned for? Now, likely you're going to say really what he accomplished on the cross is, is not actual atonement. He accomplished that we could choose him. The problem is I can't find one Bible verse that says that. That's the problem with that position from my perspective, okay? Maybe you can make another argument, but what I'm seeing here is that his death actually atones. Now, again, if you reject that, let me give you three things to ponder because I think you're in, in the danger zone in three different areas. Number one, um, I think you have to be careful that your evangelism does not simply become a sales pitch rather than a matter of prayer. Think about when you share the gospel with somebody. If evangelism and if conversion is, okay, 
we do a cost-benefit analysis. We write the pluses and the minuses. Oh, there's more benefit to following Christ, i.e., I'm going to choose and go this way. If that's what conversion is, then friends, what, what does your evangelistic pitch look like? It, it becomes pretty similar to a sales pitch, right? Now, listen, I'm, I'm kind of a doof, and when people are selling me stuff, I'm like, yeah, yeah. You know, I just kind of roll along with stuff, okay? I can be manipulated pretty easy, okay? So you can have really effective sales pitch, and you can close the deal with somebody. Is that what evangelism is about? Or is really evangelism about, hey, you present the truth, you try to do it persuasively, but ultimately the whole time you're praying because you're asking God to change their heart. Like, think back when you got converted. Was it this, well, there's more of this, there's less of this, okay, I'm going to go this way. Or was it like mine, you were floating along and all of a sudden God broke your heart. You were just the frat boy having fun, and all of a sudden, none of that was fun anymore. All of a sudden, you were like me, and you would rather, instead of going out partying, you'd rather be home all night reading your Bible. And in the middle of that, like in my case, at 3 a.m., when all my roommates are coming in, and I'm reading the Bible, and I look, and I don't want to be like that, I'm having more joy here. You know what happened to me in that moment? I realized this is weird. This is strange. Something is happening outside of me. This is not me. That's my conversion. And if you're there, then you understand that evangelism is really about prayer as much as anything else. Second, what about your own heart, meaning your own struggles with pride? Was your salvation ultimately based upon God graciously choosing you in spite of all your sins and failings? Or was it about you making the right choice? And you need to be careful how you answer that because we can actually pride in the right choices we make, right? Like, hear me, if it is like, okay, well, yeah, clearly, I mean, I mean, for a Christian, we understand this makes logical sense and this is the best choice, right? Eternity in heaven, eternity in hell. I think it's pretty simple. Pascal's wager was genius, right? But like, if you look at your conversion, you say, listen, well, yeah, it's just, you know, you make this choice. But then when you look over at your buddy, then you're kind of like, not making the right choice. I mean, he's kind of foolish, isn't he? Like, you have to be real careful in that moment, right? Because if your salvation is all about all the good choices you're making, man, that can lead to pride, can it? If you're real careful. Is it about pride or is it about God's grace? Third thing, just danger zone to be careful on, is what is your hope when you sin again as a Christian? Like, what's your solution to your problem of sin? Are you with me? So the, the choice got, well, yeah, I choose this way. Oh, I blew it again. Oh, well, okay, well, I just got to choose a, a, a different way now. Well, okay, well, yeah, I just need to figure out a, a different choice to go. Or is it something different? Like, you go down this track, and man, I, I, I can't believe I did this again. Is it pull myself up by my bootstraps, go a new different way? Or is it God help me? Like when you sin again, what's the solution there? What's the real hope when you're struggling with sin again? Is it in yourself and your good choices or is it in God? I know for me when I'm there, I, I, you, you would be blown away by how many prayers throughout my day that are simply God help me. <sighs> I got to get in the Bible again. God help me. Give me the desire to get in your word. Sunday again. I don't even want to go to church today. I'm the pastor of this thing. What is so wrong with this? God, help me change my heart. And by the time I get up here, he's changed my heart. Is that you? 
Is your spirituality, your own struggles with sin, is it really about you pulling yourself up by your bootstraps or is it about God helping you? Okay. If you accept the view, I challenge you also to ponder what you gain. If you think Hebrews 9 is about, okay, he atoned for the sins of all his people, all the sins of all his people, he actually accomplished that, then I want you to ponder what you gain. You see, if, great, if Jesus graciously atoned for you in particular, then all of your life and all of your spirituality, you know what they're about? They're about grace. They're about God giving you good things when you deserve judgment. You see, if you, even um, your faithful good works, you don't end up singing praises to yourself about those good works, right? We sing praises to Him about our good works. So like, you, you, you go down on Tuesday night and, and you help out with, with the food pantry and it's a good work and it's a good thing. You don't hop back in the car and say, man, I'm so good. This was awesome. I'm so great. I wish everybody could see me. That is a terrible worship song, right? Like, what's the better worship song? You go down and all of a sudden it's like, God, you gave me a desire to help somebody else. That didn't even make sense. That's not me. I know me. The whole time here, I was complaining because I wanted to go watch Netflix. But now I'm here and I loved every second of it. You know what you do when you get back in the car? You sing Amazing Grace, don't you? That was God's good grace. He changed your heart. He did something good through you. You got to participate in that. Even, your, even those good works are actually good gifts. And they lead to us being greater uh, and more passionate worshipers. They help us be more humble, don't they? When we realize it's not me, I didn't conjure this up. God just changed my heart. You see, when we're there, it enables us to be more humble and it helps us to be more passionate worshipers of Christ. I don't want to belabor the point. Clearly, these verses raise some complex and controversial theological points. However, what is clear is that Jesus' atoning work on the cross was complete. It was done. He accomplished all of it for us. And if you have repented and if you have believed, and thus you become an adopted child of God, then your sins are completely forgiven. Reason being is that Jesus' sacrifice was enough. Amen? This is good news, isn't it? Okay, effect number three. Jesus' sacrifice is eternal. Look with me at 27 and 28. And just as it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment, so Christ, having been offered uh, once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. The third effect of Jesus' atonement is that his sacrifice is for eternity. It's eternal. Hebrews 9, 27 is clear that we will face judgment when we die, right? You remember Jesus' story in Luke 16 of the, the parable of the rich man and Lazarus? Remember that story? You have the rich man, he lived in this big house, gates around the house, wall around the house, and, and there was always a poor man, a poor sick man outside of his gate named Lazarus. And this is the parable goes along, they both die. Lazarus goes up to heaven, the rich man goes down to hell. Jesus says in, in Luke 16, 23, that he went to Hades being in torment. Now, th- there's no account that this guy was like a, you know, like a narcissist or something weird like that, right? He was a rich guy. He, he probably went to synagogue. He, he, probably, you know, he probably went through the routine. But there's no evidence that it like really affected and transformed his heart, right? Like he walked by this poor man every day right outside of his house. He never helped him. He was irritated by him. He just moved past him, right? So there's no sense that, you know, like he was transformed by the gospel. He was a probably good guy. However, he goes down to hell. In verse 24, 
it's so bad down here that Jesus says that, uh, that the rich man cries out for Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and to cool my tongue, for I am in anguish in this flame. Jesus is very clear that we will be judged for a couple of things. We're going to be judged for the genuineness of our faith and the object of our faith. A lot of people can be genuine on things they believe. They can be genuinely wrong, right? However, people can like, yeah, 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 I believe this, and not have a genuine faith. Christianity says you need to have a genuine faith in the right thing, in Christ, in His atoning work on the cross. So what he says here is if you don't have that genuine faith in Christ, then you're going to end up in hell. You're going to be judged, and you're going to spend eternity away from the Lord. But for those who do have genuine faith in Christ, out of the fact that Jesus has atoned for their sins, we have a different path. We, we have this eternity with Christ. He accomplishes eternity for us. So when He returns, He judges us, but we go through that judgment because we're covered with the blood of Christ. Paul says in 1 Thessalonians 4.14 this way, For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so through Jesus, God will bring with Him those who have fallen asleep. That's our hope. Our hope is not pulling ourselves up by our bootstraps. Our hope is this eternal work that He's done. He had this sacrifice. He atoned for our sins. It's ultimate. It's final. And that means its effects are into eternity. Before I return to that, um, <laughs> to, the, to the widow of that generous doctor, let me just read to you three verses. They pertain, but listen, they're just good for my soul. Three verses that are just meant to warm your heart on all these truths. Number one is 1 Peter 2, 24. 1 Peter 2, 24 says, He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. That's where you say amen. Amen? You know this one, John three sixteen. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Amen? That's good. Is that warming your heart like it does mine? Let me give you one more. Romans 3, 23 to 25. For there's no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because of His divine forbearance. He has passed over former sins. Amen? Amen? Is that good news to you today? Does that warm your soul? The effect of the cross is that His sacrifice is eternal and it's ultimate. He offers a better hope. He has a final, ultimate, eternal salvation. Let me ask you a few questions. Number one, do you trust Him with your present problems? Friends, if this is true, this means that Jesus is still ministering to you. Each and every moment, he's advocating, he's interceding. What is your biggest problem? Are, are you taking that to him? He's ministering, to him? he's ministering to you right now in that problem. Are you turning to him for, your, for the solution? Number two, do you believe his sacrifice is enough? Or are you still trying to make atonement? This is a tough one because the rest of the world operates differently than that, right? We're constantly making atonement. We're constantly trying to make things right in our own strength. All of our relationships are transactional, right? Think about your relationships at work. 
Maybe in some of your relationships with your family, sadly. Maybe those are conditional, transactional relationships. It's different with God. He has an unconditional love for you based upon what He has done on the cross for you. It's unconditional. You can't out His grace. Amen? It's covered all of it. It's not conditional. It's unconditional. Therefore, you don't have to try to atone for anything anymore. You are safe and secure right here, and thus you have the freedom to walk in that. It's all been atoned for. Are you still trying to atone for your sins? Are you still trying to make yourself right and worthy with God? Brother, abandon that. You are safe and secure in Him. Amen? One more question. Do you hope in Him for your eternal salvation? Friends, I have no better news to share with you. This is it. There's nothing better to believe. There's no better way to live than this, that you are safe and secure in God's glorious grace based upon what he's accomplished for you on the cross. Is the cross your hope today? Many in that rural community panicked when that widow sent out that, all those uh, bills from, her, from the generous doctor. In fact, they panicked to the point they started calling lawyers, and lawyers started calling her. So she was close friends with one of the judges in town, and so she asked if she could go see the judge. And she went to the judge and just kind of explained what was going on. And she even brought all the books and showed him, you know, look look at all these bills. You know, he was supposed to charge for all these things. And and look at this, forgiven, too poor to pay, over and over. I mean, these are thousands of dollars. The judge wisely, he patiently listened to her. He he, he understood what she was saying. and, And listen to how this judge responded. He said, quote, Not a court in the land can touch those whom he has forgiven. That's pretty good, isn't it? Brother, that's you. You're the one that's forgiven, and nothing can touch you. Nothing in this world, that that enemy of yours that's saying those bad things about you, that eternal enemy, Satan and his demons who make all those accusations, that, that own voice in your mind that comes from your flesh that is condemning you over and over and over again, none of those things can touch you. You know why? You've been forgiven. He's already paid it. That's you. Nothing can touch you. Because of Jesus' atoning death, you have all these glorious effects. You have all these glorious benefits, all these glorious implications. You, you have a Jesus who is presently, right now, ministering to you. You have a sacrifice that is complete. The atonement is complete. There's nothing else that's needed. You have now then this eternal salvation that is totally guaranteed. It's not based upon you. It's based upon him. You know the old hymn, there is a fountain filled with blood. There's a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins. And sinners plunged beneath that flood lose all their guilty stains. The dying thief rejoiced to see that fountain in his day. And there may I, though vile as he, wash all my sins away. Ere since my faith I saw the stream, thy flowing wounds supply, redeeming love. That has been my theme and shall be till I die. Brothers and sisters, trust and believe and hope in the effects of forgiveness. Amen. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for this passage. Even the aspects of this passage that are complex or controversial, but I, I, I pray that they wouldn't be that for us in the sense that I pray, Father, that 
just these truths would be glorious to us. I pray that we would rest. Rest knowing that where we're not enough, you're enough for us. Where we fail, it's been covered. Lord, I pray that we would rest knowing that your atonement is complete and that your atonement is for eternity. Some of the implications of that, maybe we don't know all the answers to it. Maybe it's more too complex for us to understand. But at the end of the day, those who have trusted in you, Lord, may we be a people that rest in that, trust in that, hope in that. Lord, may we see your gospel as good news today. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.